Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Hey, everybody, as we do every Thursday, we jump into the time machine for Throwback Thursday. And with the loss of comedy legend Carl Reiner this week, I was reminded of my visit with his grandson, Jake Reiner, almost three years ago. At the time, Jake was a reporter at KPRC Channel 2, and he just covered Hurricane Harvey and the Astros-Dodgers World Series. So in our conversation, we discussed that unforgettable time in Houston, and he shares memorable stories from a baseball road trip with his dad, the all-time great director, Rob Reiner. The whole Reiner family are great rock on tours, and Jake is no exception. You'll hear, oh my goodness, incredible anecdotes about Bob Euchre and Andre the Giant. Absolutely one of my favorite interviews over our previous seven years of the podcast. So let's do it. Let's make our way into the time machine for Jake Reiner. All right, joining me on the podcast, and, and this is a strange one because you guys are going to wonder why is he on, but I have news reporter from KPRC Channel 2, Jake Reiner, and Jake is a huge, huge baseball fan, so this is why he's on. There might be not, I'm going to say there's not a bigger baseball fan working in local news that's not doing sports, and uh, Jake, people need to know your background a little bit. You're, you grew up in Los Angeles. You grew up a massive Dodgers fan. So I, I feel like I've given you the requisite month to mourn this a little bit, what, what happened in the World Series. But what was this like? Because you covered the World Series in Houston. You've made this your, your hometown over the last couple of years. And with everything that's happened in Houston and, and kind of getting that feel of what it's like to live here, what was it like to cover the World Series from a Houston perspective as a lifetime Dodger fan? It was interesting because a lot of people said, oh, you know, you, you've got the best of both worlds. You've got Houston and Los Angeles in the World Series. You may, this must be a tough decision for you. And I always tell them it really wasn't a tough decision for me. I've been a lifelong Dodgers fan. I, I'll, I'll admit it, I was born after 1988. So my entire life, I've never seen them even make it to the World Series. Houston's made it to the World Series in my lifetime in 2005. So I've not really felt the heartache that a lot of Houstonians have felt over the years. But given Hurricane Harvey, given what this city has been through and what this team has been through and how exciting this team is to watch, I went to a bunch of games this year at Minute Maid, and it is electric. This team has a ton of fun. They're having a ton of fun together. They don't have a weak spot in their lineup. They're an amazing group of guys. To go up against the Dodgers equally as good, and I think – you know, it, it'll go down as one of the best World Series ever. It, when you think think about teams going back and forth, back and forth each game, you didn't know who was going to win each game, and it goes to seven games in Los Angeles. I mean, you can't get any any better than that. But for me, it was a little difficult because obviously I know in my heart of hearts who I'm rooting for, but you know, you kind of have to uh, fake it a little bit on air. You know, when they're when they're tossing to you and you're you have to report on you know whether the Astros won or whether the Dodgers won and I did a lot of that where you know when the Astros would lose and they toss it out to me I would have a little bit more of a, a uh, you know a get up in my step so to speak because you know I knew that the Dodgers had won but it, it gave me the opportunity to be a baseball fan I mean you, you take a step back and you take the you know the fan part out of it uh, the sort of the um, 
the hometown fan part out of it uh, out of me and you watch from a baseball perspective it was an incredible series and I I, I had a blast covering it one thing that I, I think about with uh, as being a Dodger fan, you, you weren't there for, for 1988. Unfortunately, I say unfortunately because it means I'm, I'm very old. I remember that series. I remember watching Kirk Gibson hit the home run and just what a magical moment that was in, in Dodger history. And you look at this Astros series against the Dodgers, and that series was as memorable a series as anything just because of that one particular game. Game but, five, yeah, yeah, the one particular game, uh, game one against uh, oh, the Dodgers in nineteen eighty-eight. You look at this series, and you just said it. Game five. That's what I was going to ask you about because you were at a, a few of the games. I know you were at game five. Uh, what was that like emotionally to go through that? Because I'm sitting at home. I just know for me at home, you as a Dodgers fan, you've got Clayton Kershaw on the mound. He's going out there. You think. Okay, this is going to be maybe a low-scoring game with Clayton Kershaw and Dallas Keuchel. And Dallas Keuchel, of course. And then all of a sudden, it goes crazy. And what did you feel like as you're watching that in the stadium and knowing you're, you're looking around, probably going, "Yeah, I'm the I'm probably the only one that's not not rooting for <laughs> one of the few people that's not rooting for the Astros at this point." It was interesting because I brought my childhood best friend to the game. He came specifically to come to that World Series game with me. And we sort of got into baseball together. We were in kindergarten all the way throughout uh, elementary school and high school together. We remained friends ever since then. And so we were huge baseball fans. His name is Jacob Moss, and he was there with me. And we were – I was wearing a Dodgers cap, and he was wearing his Dodgers gear. So we were very clearly Dodgers fans in the in the stands in a sea of orange. It was one of the craziest, most most stressful, upsetting – I mean, the levels of going from happy to sad to depressed to just stress, I mean, it was insane. Every inning was a stressful inning, every single inning. And to me, it was like, okay, Clayton Kershaw had a dominant game in game one. We win, we, the Dodgers win game one. (laughs) The Dodgers win game one, and I'm thinking, okay, if Kershaw can just get us game five, we go back to Los Angeles and... You know, we have the opportunity. We go up three to two. We have game six and game seven. We're in good position. And it started out that way where it was like the Dodgers are up four to nothing. Then Kershaw implodes, gives up four runs. And you're thinking, oh, no, here he goes again. You know, the whole adage of playoff Kershaw, is he really that good? Then the Dodgers offense comes back, gives him three more runs. And I'm thinking, okay, Kershaw knows what this is like. He knows that if you give him seven runs – he should be good, but then they, they they trot him out there in the next inning, and he gets two outs. He got two outs in that, and I think it was like the fourth or fifth inning. He gets two outs in that inning, and then there was like a hit batsman and a walk, and all of a sudden, here comes the tying run in Jose Altuve, and this was the turning point in the game where I thought, okay, that we're not going to win this one. The Dodgers are not going to win this one. You just get that feeling as a fan that you just your team is just not going to pull this one out. They bring in Kenta Maeda, who has been lights out for the Dodgers out of the bullpen, kind of a surprise guy who was a starter. He comes in, gives up a massive home run to Jose Altuve. Just takes, I mean, the, the place erupts. Legendary at bat, 13 pitches, I think, in right. that at bat. He just launches one, and you're sitting there thinking, Oh my God, this this is going to be one of those back and forth games. 
but I just felt that like even the even the fact that you know we would go up by one run, they would tie it. You know the the Dodgers would go up by another, the Astros would tie it, then the Astros would pull ahead. The Dodgers tied it. You know in the, in the very late innings, even the even though the Dodgers and the the Dodgers were keeping pace with the Astros, I just had that feeling of like, you know what? It's just not our night. It's just not going to be our night. And sure enough, we 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 trot out. Um, Brandon Morrow, who, you know, has been solid all season long. He gets whacked around. Kenley Jansen has been lights out in the bullpen. He gives up the the game-winning hit to Alex Bregman, and Derek Fisher scores, and that's it. And I'll tell you, the the most interesting part about that whole experience is that I felt – I didn't feel isolated as a Dodgers fan. I felt like we were all in this together. Astros fans and Dodgers fans, we were all just kind of like going through the motions, giving each other high fives, even when the other team scored because we knew how stressful it was. Did you wear? You didn't wear a Dodger gear, though. Did I did. You? I wore a Dodgers hat. It was very, I, and I and I and I was very, you know, uh, skeptical about that because I didn't know how that was going to be felt. Yeah. How know. did How did the Astros if I, treat you? If I was recognized, you know, that was my whole fear. It's like, am I going to be recognized? I wasn't at that game, but the Astros fans were some of the nicest fans you'll ever meet. They're, they they are kind and they don't brag and they don't throw it in your face like Giants fans do. You're not going to get the, stabbed or anything right, like that. You're not going to get beat up or stabbed. <laughs> it's a very peaceful environment. But the, the best part about it, though, was when the Dodgers lost and the Astros won, the place went nuts. We leave the game and every Astros fan is coming up to us like saying, hey, good game, great game, you know. It was so cool, you know, even though I felt this like – awful feeling within me that the Dodgers had just lost and I and I didn't feel like we were going to win the series at that point to have Astros fans come up to you and congratulate you for a for a battle well fought even though we didn't do anything to sway it one way or the other we're sitting in the stands but it felt that way you know our teams kind of coming together that was the coolest moment for me Astros fans coming up to me say hey good game you know we hey good game to you you know what a crazy one and everyone was saying, like, you know, years from now, you're going to say, where were you during Game 5 of the World Series? Where were you? And we were there, and it was awesome. So let me let me take you back for a little bit, because you you, you arrived here how many years ago now? I arrived at the beginning of January uh, 2016. So you've, you've just been here for almost a little over, well, close to two almost years. Two years. And you, you cover the hurricane back in, in uh, late August and early September, and you go through all that. Uh, the dichotomy of going from that to the Astros series and knowing what this meant from this to this city uh, was it is it really something special for you as somebody that didn't grow up here and didn't live here to to kind of see and understand what this city is about and did you how much did you learn about this city just in the last two or three months from the hurricane to the Astros World Series? It was incredible. I knew the people of Houston and the greater southeast texas area are some of the nicest people you'll ever meet but they really showed their true colors during hurricane harvey and for myself going through it being a reporter i was inundated in this flood Uh, and for days my photographer and i we couldn't get back to the station the the roadways are so flooded you know, and so we were stuck up in the northwestern part of Harris County, and luckily he, my photographer Damon Sales, had his place available that he lives up that way, and so we kind of camped out at his house for a couple of days and left the live truck outside. And like, you know, at two a.m. we'd wake up and hop back in the truck and go to 
find some news and, and stuff like that. And to see the people coming out with their boats and even in canoes and kayaks coming out trying to rescue people, that's something that you 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 can't you can't really describe. I mean it's so humbling and it's so um courageous for people to come out there and do that. And for the first time as a reporter, I've not been a reporter that long, but for the first time as a reporter, I actually felt like we were doing something good. And we weren't being yelled at. We weren't being, you know, uh, people running in, in the back of our live shots and disrupting them or call, being called fake news. None of that was going on. People were coming up to us and actually thanking us for what we were doing because what we were doing was showing the people what was going on right now. We were in wall-to-wall coverage for days. And that, to me, was the most rewarding experience to be able to hear People come up to you, offer you food, offer you um, water, and one time I was doing a live shot and someone called me on my cell phone, which I didn't even know that they had that number. I don't know how they got it. And she calls me up and she says, you know, I saw your report. You're right near my house. If you want to come and your photographer wants to take a break at my place, you can come in. You can have a hot meal. You can take a shower. It was unreal. I didn't take her up on the offer because we still had to work, but just the fact that someone offered that was incredible. So when you consider all that and you go through all of it, and not just the floods itself, but also the aftermath of people cleaning up, and we were all we were covering that as well. You think about it, uh, how sports kind of brings people together, and kind of the Astros almost had to win this one. I mean, you. They knew the pressure that they uh, were carrying with them into the World Series, and I feel like this team delivered on that. You know, they didn't sweep the Dodgers. They obviously battled the best team in baseball, two of the best teams in baseball, all the way to seven games. But I felt like Astros just had that extra grit within them that like they were doing this for something bigger than themselves, bigger than sports, bigger than baseball. And to me, even though my team didn't win, I could still enjoy what everyone else was enjoying because of what I saw during Hurricane Harvey. What was the moment or two that maybe got you emotionally covering the hurricane or you were literally concerned about your life or somebody's somebody else's life as you were watching something unfold. Uh, give me a moment or two from the hurricane that just really jumps out at you. Cause you, you guys, I know we're going just nonstop 24 seven for a couple of weeks there. Exactly. There was one moment where we were covering, we we're the only station there. Cause I don't think there was any other station that could get up to where we were. We had a hard time even changing out our own crews, but we were in this situation. I forget where we were. But there was this rescue boat that had capsized, and there were 11 people on it, and nine of them had been rescued by the fire department. But two of them, two young boys, were clinging to trees. The water was so high that they were able to grab onto these trees and hold onto them for dear life. And there were moments there where you thought, are they going to make it? And we're standing out there, and when you're doing wall-to-wall coverage, you just have to expect to just be on the air for as long as it takes. And at that point, it was pouring down rain. 
water soaking through my jacket. I was visibly fatigued, mentally, emotionally, uh, physically fatigued at that point because we were on the air for about 45 minutes talking about this rescue that was going on. And they had called in the National Guard. They'd called in the Swift uh, rescue boat team to go try and rescue these boys. And everything was happening all at the same time because we had guys coming back in who were regular Joe Schmoes going out there with their own boat. We kind of grabbed them, put them on TV. Hey, what can you tell us back there? Because we couldn't get far, far back there, you know. And they were like, you know, these boys are they're clinging on to the trees and blah, blah, blah. And to hear that, you know, they were concerned too. You know, the firefighter, the fire department came and uh, it was the Cyfair Volunteer Fire Department. They showed up. Their public information officer was there. We were still on the air and they were about to you know, go from me to weather and, uh, and do a, a weather hit with our meteorologist. And I was like screaming in the microphone. I was like, don't, don't, you know, go away from us. Keep, stay on us, stay on us because we have this public information officer that can give us what we're missing, which is what's going on back there, you know, and we got him live on TV and you saw neighbors coming out of their homes, you know, all concerned about what was going on. And then they eventually were rescued by the swift uh, water rescue boats. And it was incredible uh, to see, you know, those those boys safe and all the other people that were safe. But that was a moment where it was like, are we going to be reporting um, a death on live TV? You know, it's very seldom that that happens. A lot of the times we go to a scene and it's already done, like the crime tapes up and, you know, we're reporting on a homicide. But to to the thought of, of having to report that live on TV, I don't know what that would have been like. And I was trying to mentally prepare myself to do that. Luckily, it didn't. But when you're doing that kind of coverage, you got to be careful as to what, what you're showing on TV as well. And being in that moment, you're you're, you're scared, you know, you're scared for what, what's going to happen. You're scared for yourself because you don't know what you're going to say. And there are a lot of moments during Harvey where, you know, you got to take care of yourself first. You got to make sure that your live truck doesn't get flooded out. You got to make sure that you're not going in too deep of water, that the current's not going to take you. So there are a lot of moments where you kind of feel like, you know, the, you, you start playing, you know, what's the worst that could happen in this situation. I did local news for a few years in Little Rock and Memphis, and I'm just curious, and I think a lot of people are probably wondering right now, you love sports. You're a big fan of sports. When I was doing local news, I was doing it to try to get into sports, and uh, I'm just wondering from your perspective, why news and not sports? Is it something that uh, you wanted to do from the beginning, or did you want to do sports from the beginning? I went to Syracuse University, and my initial thought was to do sports. I want, my idol was Vin Scully, listening to him call Dodger games for my entire life, it was just such a treat. And I wanted to do something like that, baseball, play-by-play, basketball, whatever it was. And so that was the idea that I had going into Syracuse. But all the classes were taught with a news template. And I never really watched news growing up. I, I Growing up, I always thought it was like, oh, it's just the thing that grown-ups watch. You know, I don't really, you know... Uh, like watching that, but learning about it in class, it was sort of eye-opening because you think about all the variety of stories that you could cover, all the 
all the stories that you get to tell, the people you get to meet. And I knew that at some point, you know, my sports knowledge and background would cross paths with my news ability. And it has in a lot of ways because a lot of sports stories turn into news stories. And so I sort of felt from a strategic standpoint, talking to some professors that news was the best route for me to go because at the time they were looking for, you know, male talent in local news markets. And that was something that they were really, uh, they really wanted. And so I felt like, okay, strategically, this sounds like a good idea. And I ended up really liking news, falling in love with it, being kind of a news junkie myself. But the, the times in which I do sports on TV are the times that I really enjoy it. And people will tell me after they see the live shots, you know, like we could tell you really enjoyed that. Like you looked like you were comfortable and you could, you know, talk for hours about it. And I really could. And a lot of the time, you know, uh, a lot of my colleagues will say, you know, you got to stop being so inside baseball. You're, you're a news guy. You, you, you know, you got to just cover the basics. And I'm like, <laughs> if I'm doing baseball, I'm doing X's and O's and you know, you can, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do that because I, I can't not do it. You know, I'm not going to, you know, for lack of a better term, dumb myself down because I got to look a certain way on TV because I'm a news guy. If I have a particular expertise in a, in a field, I'm going to use that to the best of my ability. And I did that during the World Series, which was cool because I got to do a lot of highlights from the night before. I'm a morning show reporter, so I get there very early. And so I would do the highlights from the night before and do them live on TV. And that was a lot of fun for me because growing up, you know, we all watch sports center and stuff and I love sports center. And, and that was kind of my sports center moment. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be interested to see how this goes because I, I did news for a while and it, and it takes its toll. It, yes, it's, it it's, it's a stressful business. And you just mentioned it, the, the news guy, he's hated everywhere he goes normally. Yes. And the sports guy, Hey, I want to talk to, can I talk some sports with you? And it, it, it's kind of the cooler job. Uh, one of the things that's speaking of cool is you got to do a baseball road trip uh, when you were younger. And, and this is one of the things that when we first met, uh, this is what I loved is, is you went on this road trip with your dad. And for those who don't know, your, your, your dad, Rob Reiner, your grandfather, Carl Reiner, legendary uh, family. Just I, I'm a huge fan of both your father and your grandfather, all Thank of their you. work. And uh, I want to ask you about that in a little bit, but let me ask you about this road trip because you got to go to how many baseball parks did you guys go? Did you hit every single one of them? We did hit every single one of them. I started when, I don't know, it was about 10 or 11. My dad and I, we went on uh, a baseball trip every summer. We'd go to three or four parks. Eventually we went to all of them. Now we have to go back to some of them because for instance, we went to the old ballpark in Minnesota, the Metrodome. And now they have Target Field, so we have to go back there. We've got to go back to Miami uh, and see that ballpark. We've got to now go back to Atlanta and see that ballpark. But we we went to both, like you know, Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia, and then uh, Citizens Bank Park, uh, the new one there now. Um, so it, it was an incredible journey to go on because it was just the a baseball fans dream going to and seeing baseball games in the summertime when the competition is not as uh intense as it is down the stretch and to to go and not be you know invested in the in the in the outcome of the game but just enjoy the game and be able to 
notice things that you wouldn't normally notice if you're watching your own team because when you're watching your own team you're a nervous wreck and you're you know yelling at the TV or you're yelling at the at the players or the umpires or whatever it was really nice to kind of sit back and watch these games and we have a lot of really cool uh stories and people that we met it was an extraordinary journey and also for my dad you know he's the one that that passed baseball down to me he started out as a New York Giants fan and he when you know my grandfather, his father moved out to Los Angeles, he became a Dodgers fan because he was such a huge Willie Mays nut. He loved Willie Mays. They traded Willie Mays when the Giants moved to San Francisco. They traded him to the Mets, and when they did that, my dad lost all uh, of his respect for the Giants. He hated them, and so he became a Dodgers fan because my grandfather was a Dodgers fan because of Jackie Robinson. And so you kind of have this shift of like when I, by the time I was born, they were both diehard Dodgers fan. So it just sort of made sense for me to be one. And I remember going to my first games and, you know, when I got to be, you know, old enough to really appreciate it was when we started going on that trip. And it was an incredible uh, time I had with him, a bonding experience. I'll tell you one story because uh, my dad likes to tell this one. We went and visited um, on one of our trips to Cooperstown to the Hall of Fame. And I'd like to go back now that I'm older because I feel like I would appreciate it a little bit more. But they had this exhibit in there that talks about the baseball being passed down from generation to generation. And it's really, you know, a father-son type of thing. And at the end of it, it was this little, like, movie theater thing that they had there. At the end of it, the curator comes up to my dad and he says um, – and my dad teared up. He was – he was crying. He was, you know, so uh, emotional watching it. And the curator said, you know, this this exhibit is designed to make a grown man cry. And my dad said, well, you, you did it. You did the – definitely, you definitely did that. So for me, it, it's been uh, an incredible love for baseball. It's a love-hate relationship as as is any other because – when you're following a team and I know Astros fans feel that too, because there were a lot of seasons that just ended in complete despair. I never really had that as a Dodgers fan. We've always been quite good, but the Astros fans having dealt with, you know, 100 lost seasons now going to 100 win seasons and feeling like you're on top of the world. I can't imagine what that feels like. Yeah. The difference I, I think is that the hundred lost seasons aren't the ones that tear you up as a, as a sports fan, as a baseball fan, as you know, it's the seasons like the Astros have had where you've got so close and you had those devastating losses right. in 80 and 80 with uh, you know, they lose the, the five game series against the Phillies when they were up uh, two nothing in that series in 86, the legendary game against the the Mets and uh, you know, even going to the world series, they, they lost every single game against the white Sox by either one or two runs. Right. And those games were going into the 12th, 13th inning. Those yeah. are, those are heartbreaking games to lose. Yeah. It's, it's much easier to go. Okay. They're terrible. Whatever. You know, I'll, I, if I'm, you know, if I like this guy or that guy I can follow, Oh, Jose Altuve, that guy looks like he could be good, you know, for a long time. And you know, that sort of thing. But the, yeah, the, the heartbreak is when you get so close and, and that's the thing, you know, my, my, my co-host on this show, my normal co-host is, uh, he's from Houston, but he's been living out in LA for, God, I don't know, it's about 15 years now. And he went to college there and he said, man, the people in Los Angeles, you know, they're, they're excited about the Dodgers, but they just don't quite understand that like people in Houston, 
they haven't had the Lakers winning, you know, you know, six times over the last 15 years or whatever it was, or five times with, with Kobe and all the championships that the Lakers have and all of the championships that the Dodgers have had over the years. I mean, not obviously not recently, but there was a, there was this really great stretch with the Dodgers where I think when they first got to Los Angeles, they won, you know, four or five championships. And so, you know, for Houston fans, that's the, that's the difference is that it's been that heartache. And it's just like, you're almost got it. You, you mentioned some of the people that you met, who did you meet? Because I know I, I'm sure because of your dad, you get to maybe meet some players that you normally would like normal persons. Like, I don't get a chance to meet that person. Who who did you meet? Who was exciting? And who did you go? Oh, that that, that was that was cool. It was cool for me is we met we met Jack Buck in St. Louis when he was still announcing and to meet him before he passed was amazing because he had some of the most memorable calls. One of the nicest people ever. I've met, met him myself. Just, just what a gentleman. he was. Really, really nice guy. I mean, he's just such a gentleman and such a. Uh, a wealth of knowledge uh, of of baseball. Um, why can't I remember his name? Who's the 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 guy that uh, is in Major League? The the broadcaster. He's oh, Bob Uecker. Bob Uecker. Um, we met Bob Uecker in Milwaukee, and that was oh, that's it. This is cool. So uh, Bob Uecker. The reason I really enjoyed meeting him was because he is. He plays Harry Doyle on major, in Major League, and those are some of my favorite movies of all time. And he's just hilarious, and he's one of those guys that is was a uh, you know a terrible baseball player when he played, and when you know now he's announcing, he's sort of made light of that too. You know, he understands that, but he's really funny and he's really charismatic, and I loved meeting him in the booth. He actually. You know, he put my dad on, you know, to, to do an inning and, and to, to talk with him. But he let me do a half inning of play-by-play oh, man. on the radio, which oh, was insane. <laughs> and I was so nervous and excited. Tell people how old you were when this is going on. <laughs> oh, I was like 12, 13. I oh, mean, I was goodness. so young. But I was so excited. And I remember that the Brewers were playing the Braves. And the Braves had... Gary Sheffield on their team at the time and Gary Sheffield had played for the Dodgers for a little bit and I was a fan of his and because of that I was excited to see him play for the Braves so I remember this call (laughs) you know this is a Brewers home game and the Braves are away and Sheffield's at the plate and he hits he belts one to left center and I get so excited I'm like there's a long drive to deep right left center field back goes I think it was Scott Pitsednik. It must have been some <laughs> player like that. Scott Pitsednik races towards the wall, and he makes the catch. You know, <laughs> and I was like, it was like I was disappointed that Gary Sheffield didn't hit a home run, and Bob Uecker made some quip like, you know, you know, this is a Brewers broadcast. You know, you should be, you know, you should be happy that he made that catch out out left center. So that was a really, really cool, cool moment. But for you me. want to get that home run call? It's like, come of on, course, Bob. I was. That's the only thing that I wanted, and for it to be Gary Sheffield, that would have been really, really cool. Um, another, another cool moment. I I got to um, throw out the first pitch. Uh, in Tampa Bay at, at Tropicana Field, my dad, they, they asked my dad to do it, but I asked him if I could do it and he could catch. 
and they, he asked him, and they said, "Your okay. dad looks more like a catcher, anyway." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, I, and I was a I was an up up and coming pitcher at the time. Little did I know, I wasn't wasn't that great. But <laughs> uh, it was cool because I got on the mound, and you know, Tropicana Field. There's like 300 fans there. Yeah, you know? not as much pressure as if you had done it at Yankee Stadium. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, so um, I don't know if you remember this this player, this this really obscure reliever. His name was Mike Fetters, and he pitched for the Dodgers, and he had this weird motion where he would. Like he would come set at his chest and he'd breathe twice and then he'd whip his head towards home plate like a bulldog. And I did an impression of him on the mound and I did the whole like I you know breathed twice and I whipped my head around towards the catcher and like I actually heard some laughs from the crowd. I was like, wow, I didn't know people would actually get yeah, that. Yeah, I'm surprised Rays fans would have known. <laughs> yeah, but Mike Fetters was a good pitcher at the time, so I guess you know people knew him or whatever, or he at least was known for that. And uh, I was scared because I didn't know if I was going to throw a strike, but I threw a strike right down the middle, and um, it was it was really cool. That was one of the that was one of the cool moments that we had. Top three ballparks. Which how? Give me your top three from that trip. Um, my top three. Uh, I think the, the the number one that I love the most is uh, PNC Park in Pittsburgh. I think it's beautiful. It overlooks. Uh, got the Clemente Bridge in the background. It's one of those newer ballparks, like the Canvan yards in Baltimore kind of made to look like old ballparks made to look retro, which I really, really respect that PNC park is, is which is tough for you to say as a Dodger fan. Yes. Well, Dodger (laughs) stadium is in there as, as, uh, as a number two and number three, your emotions aren't getting in the way on this one at all. on the Dodger stadium. No, no, it's not Dodger stadiums up there for me because it, when I go to Dodger stadium, it's like nothing else matters in the world. Like all my problems go away it's the one place where I can be where I can just relax and watch a baseball game. And if I'm dealing with any stress or whatever, you know, it is the most calming thing for me. And it's like when, you know, it's like when people go to church or, or something like that. That's my cathedral is Dodgers. And Chavez Ravine with the beautiful mountains in the backdrop. You too. can't get better than that. I wish the Dodger dogs were a little better, but uh, that's my only complaint about that. Uh, my third favorite ballpark. Oh, my gosh. Minute Maid. Um, Minute Maid no, no. is great. Minute Maid is a really cool ballpark. I, you know, not, I not, not one of the old ones like Wrigley or, or Fenway. Well, I, I'd say Fenway. Fenway is probably my my third favorite. I, I don't, I didn't love Wrigley to be honest. I know it's sort of like, you know, not good to say, but um, it just was like, it was cool being there, you know, to see a game. Cause you, you could say you're at Wrigley, but like in terms of aesthetics, I, I just think Fenway is just more, it's got that kind of like, you know, daunting old feel, you know, you're in an old ballpark and it's got, and it's very eerie when the clouds roll in and the sky gets dark. And it's like got this very dramatic atmosphere that I really liked. So those are, those would be my top yeah, three. Boston fans might work against it too. Uh, I've been to Fenway. And I mean, I haven't been to Fenway. I've been to Wrigley. Wrigley's my favorite. Uh, I haven't been to Fenway though. I think if Fenway, you know, I think I would definitely put that as my number one, but uh, I, I think of, uh, you know, uh, Pittsburgh definitely is is in that group, and, and, and uh, San Francisco. The the what's, AT&T. It, what's, it, what's it called now? They they change the names every. every I time. know it's uh, ball phone companies. AT and T is what they call it now. Yeah, the 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 ones that I see, the ones that you see on TV. You know, when I see them, I go Pittsburgh and and San Francisco, uh, maybe Camden and Baltimore, because uh, that's another you know really old style, old school ballpark. Uh, were you, you were you at the old Tiger Stadium or the new no, one? No, I went to the new one. Yeah, and, and to me, I think either one of those would be would be pretty cool to 
to go to because they again they've got the old feel and you know they've got that classic kind of upper deck that uh you know you mentioned your dad being a Giants fan and I think that that's probably what the the old stadium there looked like oh uh, yeah uh it's that, that kind of look or even even Evitz Field I'm sure and Evitz Field was like a, it was a band box wasn't it it was yeah. just this really small it's like 20 something thousand maybe or something. right it's that small it's ridiculous uh let me let me ask you about um uh, your dad, cause did, did I think I was going through IMDB He and I, I was pretty sure of this and, I, and then I double checked. He hasn't done a baseball movie or, or even a sports movie that I can think of. Right? No, no. He's been offered to do a number of sports films, baseball films, but he's not done. He's not done one yet. I think he, tur- I, so he probably turned some good ones down. He, he turned down for the love of the game. I know that for sure. Oh, okay, and and for I think for good reason that wasn't a very good movie. But he, I think if I, I don't want to speak for him, but I think he's right, waiting for the right script to do to do a baseball film. I think he would. I think he would. You know, knock it out of the park for lack of a better term. And his ex wife did like one of the best, one of my favorite a baseball films, own. A League of Their Own, was fantastic. And I also, you know, he he worked with Billy, of course, and. And when Harry met Sally and, and Billy Crystal directed, it was it sixty one, right? Was he yeah. directed and produced maybe? Yep. And and that's that's a fantastic on, on Roger Maris. So that I mean, those are the, those are the kind of ones I think of. I mean, I know I know your dad like he'll sneak a baseball scene in, like uh, you know when Billy's. When, I love this scene when Billy's at the batting cages and when Harry met Sally. Yeah. Or when Tom Cruise is hitting batting practice and softball and a few good men, he added that one. Oh, in there. okay, yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah. I just was watching the other day a little bit from from All in the Family. Have you watched a lot of All in the Family episodes? And what do you think when you see your dad? You know, because this was way before you were born, right? It's when he had hair. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was. It's it's funny because if you follow him uh, politically, he has essentially the same type of views. He's the that... meathead's views in the right, <laughs> right, which is which is interesting, and he. Um, He's not quite as I, I hyper want, and emotional as he is in that show. Though. No, no, <laughs> definitely not. But watching the show, I've seen I've seen a number of episodes. He, I don't recognize him. Like it's hard for me to picture him as my dad. I hear his voice, you know, but it's so young, and he doesn't look anything like how he looks now. But it, it is it is cool to watch those old episodes. So you can almost separate. You know, you can separate and sort of enjoy the show. Yeah, because you, it's like you, you're not thinking, "Oh, that's dad, that's dad, that's dad." Right. And because he does such a good job, and even in like movies like Wolf of Wall Street or some of the movies that he's acted in nowadays, he he is a really good actor. So you 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 know that when you're taken out of like you said, oh that's dad or oh that's grandpa or whatever, you're taken out of that when they do a really good job of of acting. So when you're watching All in the Family, like you said, you can you can just enjoy it. And in fact, we we talked about it the other day. I just got back from vacation, Thanksgiving break, and we were talking about what would it be like to do All in the Family today. And a lot of people have have said that it would be very beneficial for the kind of political climate that we're going through to see, you know, a guy like Archie, you know, sort of a conservative um kind of a that bombastic Trump style kind of guy, you know, go against uh, a guy like my dad's character in today's world. I don't know if he's looked, you know, differently as, okay, is he the, is some people are going to look at him like the hero and some people are going to look at him at the villain. And I'm sure 
there was some people during that time that like, oh, he's that's the guy I relate to as opposed to as opposed to your dad in, in that show. Right. It was it was a really relatable character. Both of them were because they talked about everything on that show, every single social issue that nobody else wanted to touch. They touched. And that's why that show was so successful, because they they didn't have any boundaries. And I, my dad said the only way that that show could work today is if they did it on, like, HBO or Showtime where they could kind of do whatever they wanted to do. I don't know if any of the cable networks would ever uh, pick up on that. Yeah, well, there's nothing PC. If you watch that show, there was nothing PC about it. I mean, yeah. they were just, you know, straight out there. Uh, three three of my all-time favorite movies ever, and I'm not just saying that because you're here. I mean, I absolutely love When Harry Met Sally. Stand by Me and The Princess Bride. I mean, to me, they're just they're classics. That and the, 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 what's so fun about them is you should watch them over and over again. I assume you've seen all of his, you know, the movies that everybody would know. Uh, what is your favorite movie of of all of his movies, or which one maybe do you relate with mo- the most? A Few Good Men, I think, would be my favorite one. But growing up, we watched Princess Bride like nonstop, over and over and over again. And that was a, a really great kind of fantasy movie. And it's so and you it's funny because you watch that you watch that movie when you're younger and you're just, you know, oh, my God, there's sword fighting and so much action. And there's these big rodents and there's, a, you know, a prince and a princess and the king. And, you know, it's sort of that fantasy land you're living in, but you're not really listening to the script or the or the jokes or anything. And then you watch it when you're older and you're and you're laughing hysterically at it because the script is so funny and the the combination of it just makes makes it a terrific movie but um some of the other movies that i that i liked of his that that do, that don't get a lot of attention are uh misery which i think right. was yeah. his only thriller that he did which i thought was amazing Kathy Bates actually won the oscar for best supporting actress in that one and ghost of mississippi i just rewatched that one uh, about the the trial of Byron Dillebeck with who's the 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 man who shot and killed Medgar Evers, a civil rights activist. And that one's a really good one. It's a really, really good one. Not, I wouldn't say, I'd say if you compare that court drama to a few good men, it, it comes in second, but it's still great. Remind me who was in that. One. I'm trying to remember if I saw that one. Ghost of Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, it's with Alec Baldwin. Right. And, yeah. And James I, Woods. Yeah. I think, no, I think I did Whoopi see Goldberg. that one. Yeah. That was, that was a really, really good movie. Uh, you mentioned Princess Bride. Can you give me a story that your dad's told told you about uh, doing that movie or something that happened that you, you just love this to hear that story as you're watching that? Oh, of course. Um, it's it's funny. Andre the Giant. He didn't speak English. He's French. Or he was French. And so my dad, like, in order for him to get, he'd never acted in a movie before. But my dad said there was no one else I could cast but Andre the Giant. And you know, where am I going to get a big seven foot giant? You know. So he was the only guy that could do it. So my dad was like adamant about getting him to learn the line. So my dad would uh, record all the lines on tape so that he could listen to how the words are pronounced and he could learn his lines that way, which is really cool. But one of the stories that he told that he always tells, which is really hilarious, is is at the end of the movie, you see the um, four actors ride off on four white horses, you know. Fezzik, Andre the Giant, is standing below the window. He's like, I got four white horses. And then, you know, the princess jumps down and she's this glowing, beautiful thing that, you know, he catches her and all that. So that scene originally, they were planning to put Andre on a horse. 
And in order for him to get up on the horse, they were going to have to literally lower him down on a pulley system (laughs) and like lower him to the ground and make sure that the pulley system could hold him up because he's too heavy. He's a legitimate, I think was like 400 maybe at the time. He's a massive dude. So one night my dad, they're shooting late and Andre the giant could drink anybody under the table. I mean, he would hold bottles of wine. Like they were, you know, toothpicks in his hand and just, knock back oh yeah gallons <laughs> I've heard that gallons <laughs> i mean the guy was a tank and so one night they're shooting and <laughs> my dad he, he i love the way he tells it but he he said he came into work and andre had been drinking really heavily that night and they had him up in the pulley system my dad walks into work and he looks up and he sees andre the giant hanging from this pulley system drunk three sheets four, 15 sheets past the wind you know hanging from this pulley system and he goes hello boss hello <laughs> and my dad was thinking like this is my life this is my life i've got a 400 pound giant hanging from a pulley system drunk as all heck and i'm about to shoot a scene now needless to say they didn't use they didn't put him on the horse. They put an act. They put. I think they put a stunt double on the horse, and they were able to shoot it that way. But just this, that story was really, really funny. Oh man, yeah, that's. I just, yeah, he just reminds me how much I love the movie. I remember I was, I was in New York City, was visiting a friend, and she happened to live in the building. I, I didn't, I had no idea, but she actually happened to. She was house sitting in this, in the building that was uh, Manny Patinkin lived in. Mm-hmm. And so I one day I get in the elevator, and it's and, and Manny Patinkin, and it's me. Um, my friend and then Manny Patinkin is, is with us and Manny Patinkin just starts to sing. And of course, like he's like one of the great Broadway singers. And I'm like, I'm in an elevator. And Manny <laughs> Patinkin is singing next to me. And I'm just, I'm taking all my willpower not to say, you know, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. You know, the right. guy I'm sure has to hear it every day. Of but course he does. But I mean, you can't get better than uh, being remembered for that uh, movie. I just, uh, that's a fantastic one. Uh, and then uh, one of the things I was looking up because uh, I was looking up your dad, I'm looking through all of his credits, and he was actually in, in an episode of the Partridge Family, the Keith Partridge. I mentioned it because you know Keith uh, David David Cassie just passed away uh, within the last couple of weeks, and your dad plays a guy named. I think the episode is called something like a man named Snake, and your dad plays a guy named Snake, and he's got a tattoo. It was like this is the opposite. Have you ever seen that? I've was- never seen that episode. <laughs> that sounds hilarious. We gotta pull that up on YouTube, but. Uh, yeah, that, that that was great. How is your dad dealing with all this stuff with, with what's going on with Hollywood right now and everything that's going on? Because in a way, you're almost you're fearful as just as a fan of these people. Like, uh, is this going to ruin yet somebody else that I'm a fan of somebody that I love their shows? I mean, I I can't honestly I can't even watch Bill. I can't watch the Cosby show anymore. And it's something that I grew up with. And it's like, I can't, it's, that one's just so hard for me to separate, especially because Cosby plays so much of somebody that's himself. How's your dad dealing with that? Because I'm sure he knows some of these people. And it's almost like you wake up in fear every day. Like, who's the next guy that I'm going to find out about and who I'm going to have a totally different, you know, feeling about them as a human being. It's crazy because the other day, um, the other day, yesterday, you know, comes out Matt Lauer. And we're racing to get that on the air. That was crazy because no one knew that that was going to happen. And like you were saying, you know, who's who's going to be next? You know, or we're all kind of thinking about it. And the way my dad looks at it is that this stuff goes on all the time in Hollywood, and it's very underreported. Unfortunately, it 
sexual assault is underreported anyway. But you think about Hollywood and you think about people that, that don't want to jeopardize their career. I'm talking about victims of sexual assault. They don't want to jeopardize their career. And so they're fearful of that. They're fearful that of retaliation from someone who's in power, who has, you know, can, can make or break their career and can, and they're also ashamed of, of what happened. And there's all these thoughts that are going through their mind. I can't, I can't put myself in those shoes um, because I've never been in a situation like that, but just all of those factors are at play. And my, my dad is, is actually, glad that victims are coming forward because at the end of the day you need to figure out who who's doing this kinds of who's doing these kinds of things because it it is in in a lot of cases against the law and there are a lot of degrees of violations you know from an, a crude joke to all the way to uh, forcing yourself on someone. I mean, obviously there, there are degrees of, uh, across the spectrum here, but he is happy that, that victims are starting to come forward. And that, that is, is, is a really, really good thing because it, it, it'll kind of spotlight who is, who are doing these things and who, who can we, you know, basically not trust any anymore, but it is, it, it, it is crazy. I, I don't know quite what to think of it yet, but it, it seems as though, once Harvey Weinstein came out and that all of those allegations came out, the, the sort of the floodgates opened and you've got, you know, Kevin Spacey and Louis C.K. and, you know, Matt Lauer, Charlie Rose and, you know, Al Franken, too. It's just a, such a unreal time that we're living in. And to me, what's interesting to me, and I, I would never talk about this in a, in a news setting or, or on on TV, but. What's interesting to me is you've got all of these actors and these political figures and these, um, you know, TV personalities that are being, you know, that they're they're being fi- found out about, and a lot of them are losing their jobs. Their, you know, their careers are over. But then, you know, you've got someone like President Trump who has a bunch of. You know, people that are something, hurling something Alex, like sixteen women have right, come out. Sixteen yeah. women have come out, and during the campaign, he said that he was going to sue them, which he hasn't done yet. You know, it's interesting to me that a lot of these, you know, where's Billy Bush? You know what I mean? It's like, and this guy, and then this guy becomes president, and he is now tweeting about Matt Lauer, and he comes out and starts tweeting against Matt Lauer, and it's sort of like, wait a second, you know, yeah. how can you? How can you uh, – it's like the hypocrisy to a level you can't fathom. You know, It blows my mind. It really does. Let me spin it back around to sports because you know, I'm somebody that uh, – you know, when you're younger, I think you go, okay, I don't, I don't care that this guy did that or that guy did this. How do you look at it as a sports fan? I mean are you, are you kind of hoping like I do that I, I don't want my teams to, to get the guys that are the bad guys? I mean Bob McNair – has made it a point throughout his history as the Texans owner, you know, he's not going to go after people with, uh, with issues like this. He's not going to go after. And, and, and those guys are, are sometimes just gone as soon as, you know, that something happens with them. Uh, and, and, and you can argue in the, the, the Colin Kaepernick story is a whole other story, but you know, that whole idea I love, I love rooting. You know, there's a, there was a, Astros used to have root for the good guys. That was their motto for one year. And the Astros have always been like that. I always felt like, 
hey, the Astros, for the most part of their history, you, you start looking through their guys that they've had on, on, in their franchise. They've been good guys. And I, I always tell people, I don't think you would feel the same way if you were covering the team or if you were around these people and, and, they were, and they were jerks and they were bad people. So why would you feel any different than as a fan wanting to, to root for somebody like that? When you look at your teams, do you ever go, I'm not going to root as hard for my team now because I don't want to win with that guy on my team. Right. You don't want to, you don't want to root for that guy. Whether or not the owner of the team goes after the player in question, you really can't support that that player anymore. You can I think you can support the team because it's not everyone's fault that this guy or this this one person is sort of you know, singled out and it it shouldn't affect the entire team, but yeah, you can't you can't root for these guys anymore. I mean, you know, you can't root for someone that that that's going that 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 treats women like that, you know. You you can't support like a uh, the the guy the the Baltimore running back. Oh, Ray Ray um, Ray Rice. Ray yeah. Rice. Yeah. You can't support him anymore. I mean, if the if those are the people that you know you're rooting for and and respecting because you know you want your football team to win, then you you got to look in the mirror as to what your priorities are. And it's the same thing with the whole, you know, kneeling for the national anthem thing. If you're upset with, with, with people exercising their freedom of speech and you're not going to root for your team anymore because of that or not going to root for those guys, that to me, the whole balance of that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, the dichotomy that uh, how fans look at things is, yeah, it, it, it's bizarre. I, I, I don't understand it. It's hard for me to to put my to wrap my head around where where those people are, are coming from. Um, yeah, I, I, I could get into that, but I, I'm I'm trying to make it a sort of an oasis, uh, you know, with with my show for from getting into too serious stuff. But you know, I think this is like I think it's really important, and and I and it's real relatable to what's going on with the entertainment world and what's happening over there because. You know, that's something that sports always seems to deal with. You know, it's, it's a constant thing where entertainment, you don't see it as much. Occasionally you'll hear like, oh, that guy's kind of a jerk. I mean, I think the stuff that came out with Steven Seagal, everybody was like, well, yeah, we, we, we could have guessed that with what we heard about Steven Seagal over the years. But um, with, with sports, it's a constant thing. You're constantly have to go on, well, you know, how, how much do I want to root for this team or whatever? You know, and, and I think that's where it gets... Uh, it gets really complicated emotionally, you know, both when you're doing entertainment and you're doing sports. And sometimes in entertainment, you can go, well, I can get myself so into that movie or so into that TV show that I can I can sort of just separate myself by just going, OK, that's a whole other thing where when you're rooting for this running back or a pitcher or something like that. You know, say Araldis Chapman, he's had his allegations right. against him, and that, that's a perfect example. Well, the Dodgers didn't trade for him for that reason. Yeah. They, they actually had a trade in place for Araldis Chapman before he went to the Yankees, and the Dodgers declined to, to deal for him because they didn't want that baggage. Great trip into the time machine with former KPRC Channel 2 reporter Jake Reiner, and who knew at that time that the Astros would trade for Roberto Osuna. So a little premonition maybe in what we were talking about towards the end of that. And also, oh my goodness, who knew how the Astros championship would get reinterpreted with one of baseball's biggest scandals. As for Jake's grandfather, Carl, the world will miss his humor and just pure joy. I was such a fan of him. We send our thoughts to Jake and his family this week. 
And we also thank you for listening to our Throwback Thursday pod. Check out the archives for more of our throwbacks. We'll see you soon. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.